This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello, good morning and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Jackie McGlone, a journalist, and it is a great privilege and pleasure for me to introduce Joyce Carol Oates this morning. It's a very special event build in the book festival program as an audience with one of America's greatest living writers. Joyce Carol Oates is indeed one of America's greatest li living writers and she is its foremost woman of letters. She's not simply one of the most prolific and versatile authors, she is also one of its most revered. Her name is constantly mentioned as a potential Nobel laureate, while many of us believe that she is indeed the great American novelist, if it's not too heretical a thought for the literary establishment that the great American novelist might be a woman. <laughs> the award-winning author of more than 50 novels, we think, um, a thousand short stories, as well as volumes of poetry, plays, essays, and criticism. Joyce Carol Oates was born in Lockport, New York. She attended the same tiny one-room school as her mother and went on to graduate from Syracuse University. She published her first book with Shuddering Fall in 1964, aged 26. Three of her novels, Blackwater, what I Lived For and Blonde have been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. Since 1978, Joyce Carol Oates has taught creative writing at Princeton University, where she is Professor of the Humanities. She comes to us today with two new novels, A Fair Maiden and Little Bird of Heaven, both of which explore such familiar Oates territory as illicit sexuality, male violence, and damaging social divisions, and both of which feature a young female protagonist at the mercy of adult desire. The Daily Telegraph's reviewer found Little Bird of Heaven's greatest achievement, its portrait of children forced to come to terms with their elders' sexuality and then with their own. The Guardian has quite simply declared, Joyce Carol Oates is a genius. Ladies and gentlemen, Joyce Carol Oates. Joyce, the, uh, the fictional worlds of Little Bird of Heaven and A Fair Maiden are very different. Uh, Little Bird of Heaven is um, an expansive, turbulent work set in small-town America. A Fair Maiden is more spare and controlled and set on the affluent New Jersey coast. How important is that sense of place to you as a writer? Well, a sense of place is enormously important to writers. It's one of, the, one of the motives for writing, I'm sure there are many writers in the audience, is memorialization. And you're kind of memorializing a place and a time, it, usually your own family or your own uh, background, the city, the landscape you grew up with. So writing is a way of assuaging homesickness, I think, and going back and creating an imagination, a world you may have lost. So A Little Bird of Heaven is part of my upstate New York novels that deal with, with the past as seen from the perspective of the present. Often somebody who's an adult is going back home to the past and then we see the, the adult and we see the child sort of simultaneously. 
So that's very important. I think most novelists, whether it's James Joyce writing about Dublin or Faulkner writing about Yoconopatalfa County, really could not write at all without having that sense of place. Mm -hmm. um, Little Bird of Heaven, in Little Bird of Heaven, you've returned to the fictional town of Sparta in Upper State, New yes. York, uh, which will be familiar to anyone who has read the family saga, We Were the Mulvaneys. Um, and as in that earlier novel, the fulcrum of the plot is an act of sexual violence. Um, but the, you choose to split the narrative between two voices, the, the daughter of one of the, the men suspected of the murder, Krista, who's 11 at the time, and um, the, the dead woman's son, who is 14. How do you hear those voices? Do you, when you start writing the book, how do you, do you sense them? Do you know in advance they're going to be, it's going to be split that way? Well, when I first began writing, which was really a long time ago, <laughs> decades ago, I tended to have a narrative voice from which I told the story much more um, adamantly and specifically than I tell it now. Now I tend to have more of a dramatist sense of other people telling stories. So I really changed quite a bit. When I read my early work, I seem to have these long paragraphs where I'm telling the story and what people are thinking and not that much dialogue. And now it's almost the opposite where I'm, driv I'm driven and really quite mesmerized by the voices of these people. And I worked, uh, I've worked in, in the theater a little bit and I've, I've written plays. And so everything in theater is driven by, by different voices. But what I was so struck by uh, wanting to write about in the novel Little Bit of Heaven is this phenomenon that's actually not uncommon in the United States, I don't know about the UK, where a person, in this case a man, is suspected of a crime, it's a crime of murder. He's suspected, he's interrogated, but he's never arrested. And he never is indicted and he's never tried, but he's released into the community and there is this, uh, it's like a cliche, you know, this cloud of suspicion. And I think one would actually feel this sort of cloud over one's head. His family life falls apart. He, he loses his job. This is something that happens fairly often in the United States where the police immediately arrest people and they, they interrogate them, but then they can't really bring much evidence against them. And so some of them are kind of let go but then their lives fall apart. Mm. And I wanted to write about that phenomenon from the point of view of the man's daughter. And then the, uh, another man is also suspected of the same crime, which is the murder of the wife of one of the men. And both men have a motive for murdering her and an opportunity. And so they may have done it. And I wanted to write about the son of the other man, the son and the daughter. And the two of them are linked in this very bizarre way though they don't know each other, and the boy is a little older than the girl, they're, they're sort of nervously and anxiously aware of each other as being the child of the probable murder, because each child thinks the other father probably did it. And so it's constructed along the lines of a, of a suspense mystery novel, though it's literally not, it's not a genre novel, but when I began writing it, and uh, also, this is true of A Fair Maiden, they both have genre structures. Because mm -hmm. I, like I like that structure of the genre, where each chapter is doing something very specific, and then there's an ending. The final chapter in genre always explains what, what's happened. It's, um, 
a little different from literary fiction, sometimes leaves things unresolved, so you actually don't know. It's sort of an ironic diminishment ending, a quiet ending. In genre fiction, mysteries are usually explained. And so I do explain, I explain the mystery of how the woman was killed, but then there are other things that, that are maybe not explained. So all that went into writing, you know, this is sort of exciting thought of how you would feel if your father had been suspected of a crime but never exonerated but never proven to be guilty. And so the, it becomes like a dialogue with the dead, the father's dead at the point in the novel when we enter the novel, the father has died. And my father had died a few years before that, so I was sort of thinking about my own father and how we, we relive moments in the lives of people who have, we've lost. You sort of go back and you're thinking about the things you might have said or there's some little mystery about your father. You never ask him something. And so it, was, it was had a lot of personal dimension to the novel as well. Then in that case, can we digress a little to talk about your parents? Your parents were, were very hardworking, courageous, spirited people um, who scrabbled hard to make a living on this farm upstate New York. And um, you've often said your father was thorough-like. Yes, well, my parents, I, I just felt very romantic figures. They got married when they were very young. I've seen pictures of them. They're really very attractive people. My father had this black hair, and he looked very exotic, I thought, and people thought he looked like Elvis Presley and so forth. Then many, many years later, we found out, um, after my grandmother had died, we found out that she had been Jewish. And so what we thought was exotic in upstate New York among the Hungarians, you know. Of course, among Hungarians, maybe lots of people look, look attractive and exotic. I'm not sure. That's, that's supposed to be a joke. That's just, <laughs> I'm just sort of assuming there are no Hungarians in the audience. But my, uh, my other side of my family is Hungarian, you know, like really peasant-type squat people. <laughs> I don't know why I got on the subject. It's just really <laughs> kind of embarrassing. Anyway, in, into this salad peasant stock comes this exotic, you know, these people with black hair and intelligent eyes and so forth, and who like to read books, you know. What? The whole idea of reading a book seems somehow strange to some people. Anyway, there were German Jews who had mixed in with Irish and mixed in with these Hungarians. So my father uh, was the bearer, I think, completely unconsciously of this uh, German-Jewish, if you believe in blood destiny or something, that he loved books and he loved the idea of uh, the world of, of ideas and the intellectual world, even though he had to work as a, as a factory worker. He wasn't a farmer. He would just laugh at the thought. I mean, he, he wasn't exactly skilled uh, as a farmer. We lived with my grandparents, and they were the, they were the Hungarians. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny because my grandmother came over here when she was 18 years old. She thought that it was, that was too late to learn English. <laughs> just, she never tried, you know. My grandfather could sort of read a newspaper, but he was this funny character. And often I write about people like this. I mean, I, I love them. And he was very stocky, and he, he had his hard cider, his jug of cider, like all beside him, like at breakfast, you know, sort of start the day off that way. And so that, that, that's side of my family. And people ask me how I write about these strange people and how I know about 
violence and so forth. Well, the idea of violence is just sort of everyday life in, in that world. And then my father and, and his world, sort of from another direction, the world of, of respect and excitement about books and learning, and they'll kind of come into a collision. The only thing, the only strain we don't have in our family is English. Well, you may have some Scottish, you never know. Scottish and Irish are fine. Irish is fine, but you know, we don't have any English, I'd say. <laughs> I say that quickly when I'm around Irish people, which no English. Uh, your father um, uh, always wanted an education, didn't he? And, yes. and after he retired, indeed, he yes. did go and do courses at university and so on. But they yes. named you for James Joyce because oh, you no, were. No. Oh, come on. Oh, they, I don't know who James Joyce was. D really? Because I thought you were born on Bloomsday. Oh. I must have read the wrong article, Joyce. Well, people make up some amazing things, but <laughs> the idea that James Joyce would be known in Millersport, New York, is just. <laughs> I mean, let's say Wit Wittgenstein, you know. Uh, no. There was a wonderful little library that you went to as a child, though, wasn't there? Oh, not in Millersport. In Lockport. In Lockport. <laughs> well, in Lockport, yes, Lockport was our big city. Lockport, New York. Nobody's here from Lockport, New York. <laughs> Sometimes when I go around and visit places, even though the most unlikely places, somebody will say, I'm from Lockport. <laughs> and, and it's so strange that we sort of meet and we, we embrace each other and we're both shuddering. We're so happy that we're not in Lockport anymore. <laughs> People from upstate New York bond over the fact that we're not in upstate New York. It's called the Snow Belt. So the library in Lockport, New York was not a bad library. It was actually quite a nice library. But when I grew up on this farm, I say farm with quotation marks because it wasn't much of a farm, things tended to die on the, on the farm. They sort of staggered and died. I was in charge of chickens. If anybody is ever in charge of chickens, you know they don't live long. <laughs> Our chickens did it. Maybe I was doing something wrong. I'm not sure. They got diseases and they all peck one another. So I don't have strong memories of that. But we had a library in the city of Blackport, and, and really it was like a temple of learning. It was lovely to go in there and see books, and there was no manure there. <laughs> so I remember the books in the library and no manure. That was very exciting. <laughs> Anyway, well, I, we'll get back to these two books. Um, we we you, don't have to get back. <laughs> well, I have We're going to move qu quickly out away from the idea of James Joyce and Millersport. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it's a, well, it's a thought to take away and cherish, Joyce. It's like a New Yorker cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of those cartoons where you see it, you look at it several times, and it, you can't find anything funny about yeah. it. It's, I did, I did see one that made me laugh recently. Uh, a young girl on her bunk writing, Dear Mom and Dad, thanks for giving me a wonderful childhood and therefore ruining my chances of becoming a great novelist. <laughs> a great memoirist. Yeah, a great memoirist, yes. probably. Um, Joyce, in your books, you delineate character with great position and sympathy. Does every novel begin with a character, or does it begin with the plot? How do you create character? Well, where that's a very they, good question. Where do they come from? Uh, the, I think the novels begin with riddles and thoughts about things that you haven't resolved. I know *A Fair Maiden, which is this novella, it's unusual for me to have written 
a novella, though I love the form. It's actually very hard to write a short form, and I wish that I could do it more often. But that began as a kind of riddle. There's a young girl who's 16 meets an older man who's 68, and each of them is looking toward the other for uh, some sort of advantage. And the girl is relatively poor, and the man has a fair amount of money. And she thinks maybe she can exploit him and get some of his money. He's thinking he can exploit her in different ways. And I was sort of thinking about the riddle of, of youth and age and very much identifying with both of them, and maybe even identifying a little more with the older person, because I'm closer in age to the, the man than I, than I am to the girl. And what he would want from her, which I think the reader or the average person seeing the two of them together would not understand what he wants from her and what her special mission is, that he is a bearer of a, of a kind of wound. And she would not understand that because she's not that old. She's basically just a 16-year-old and doesn't understand certain things that you understand when you're older. So it's like a riddle of what these two would be doing together. Then the other novel with the two young people bonded by this murder and not knowing who the actual murder was, that too is a, is a kind of riddle. And out of that generates some sense of the people who populate the riddles and what their, their symbolic and emblematic function is. So I tend to write about things that are emblematic or symbolic. So often I use a fairy tale structure or something that has resonance in a legend or, or a myth because once I wrote a novel using, in a way, using the King Lear legend, which Shakespeare did too. I mean, the, the Lear legend predates King Lear as a play, as you know. The idea that there's a king and he has these daughters and he expels the beloved daughter. That was, that's sort of a, an old folk tale. And these folk tales are there for all of us to work with because they still have resonance. And so I work with them. And both of these books ha take their titles from songs. One, Fair Maiden from the Ballad, which you might speak about. Please. Oh, Barbara Allen, yes, and Barbara Allen. That's one of the songs I go around the house singing. I have about, my repertoire is about five songs, and I sing to them over and over again. One of them is Joe Hill. But I'm not going to sing them now, but Aww. Barbara Allen is a most beautiful ballad, and I've heard it in every, every different form, and I could hear it again and again. I never, I never tire of Barbara Allen. I once did a study of the English and Scottish popular ballads of tradition, and so I listened to a lot of them on, on records at that time. And of course now you can hear them all. You can actually just go to the internet and type in child, Professor Child is the person who collected all the ballads. He took child ballad number 99 or 400 or whatever, Barbara Allen, and you can just sit and listen to it on, uh, through the internet. So I do that once in a while. And then the uh, Little Bird of Heaven is a song that's a, it's like a bluegrass or country song, and that is more, more recent. That's within the last 20 years that was written. I'm not sure when it was written exactly, but it's within the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Little Bird of Heaven. Did any of you know that song, Little Bird of Heaven? Again, Martha Scanlon wrote it. She's a contemporary mu musician and composer and bluegrass singer. She's got a very nice voice. Little Bird of Heaven by Martha Scanlon. I got to know her through email when I, when I was using the stanzas of that song. 
I'll read it to you because it's very much uh, symbolic of the novel. Well, love, they tell me, is a fragile thing. It's hard to fly on broken wings. I lost my ticket to the promised land, little bird of heaven right here in my hand. Little bird of heaven, it's the uh, refrain is the little bird of heaven is right in your hand. In other words, you've let it go and you've ignored it, but all along through your life, the little bird of heaven is right here in your own, in your own hand. It's close in your own family or your domestic life. I just felt that was so beautiful. And it's a very beautiful song. I get sort of tears in my eyes. If you've lost anyone whom you've loved, that is particularly resonant because it's, mm -hmm. you know, you have the little bird of heaven and maybe don't appreciate it, and then you've lost it, and it's, it's gone. The, I said to you, did the, character, did the characters come before the plot, or the plot with, with the characters? Well, the one plot with the, the two people, young people linked by the murder, that the plot all sort of comes together, I think. Mm -hmm. And then if you want one character to be the, the bearer of the, of the story, the narrator, that character would have to be older, looking back, and so that character might be somebody who's left home. So I thought of somebody who went into the criminal justice system because she's been so obsessed with the fact that her father was never cleared of his crime. So somebody like that could become a lawyer or public defender, mm -hmm. and she's, she's working with the criminal justice system. So that seemed to be a, a reasonable way that one deals with that. I always felt that my father was a mysterious person. The person whom I got to know when I was an adult, maybe like my grandmother as well, was in a way inhabiting a role. My Jewish grandmother never acknowledged she was Jewish, and she was always then playing a role. She was playing the role very well of a beloved grandmother who really, really focused on her family. And you could never ask her, nor would she ever volunteer anything about her past. So I sort of grew up around people who had very painful and almost unspeakable pasts, but they never talked about them. I think I sort of sensed that there was something, and also my mother's side of the family. I should say this is a long time ago, and in those days people did come over to the United States as immigrants, and they came over maybe alone. They could be 18, 19, 16 years old, and they come alone. And they had adventures of a kind of not always very pleasant. Uh, now, today, in the United States, our students at Princeton University, for instance, who are between the ages of 18 and 20, 18, 21, or whatever, they are uh, always in contact with their parents by cell phone. You know, they, they can't go anywhere without the mother will call them in class and say, where are you? And, and she says, oh, mom, I'm here. I'm in my class. You know, I'm, please don't call me because this is a seminar. You know, so you turn it off. And, and I, it's so amusing because the, our ancestors only a couple generations ago were quite the antithesis. Their parents had no idea where they were, and probably their parents had kicked them out, you know. Um, I, there were nine children in my mother's family, and the father was murdered in a tavern fight. And so my mother, who was just a baby, an infant, she was actually given away. And uh, that was that the world that I come from is so different from the world that I live in right now. But I think the world I came from is more the traditional or conventional world all, all around the world and in history, and that the world I live in now in Princeton kind of middle, upper middle class world, I think that's, that's the rarefied and 
unreal world. It's, it's not that realistic to be a, in such close contact with one's parents. It's the way we've evolved in America and some quarters of America, but I don't think it represents the human condition generally. You've said um, that you often tell, you, you always tell your students um, to listen to people. You, you like people, don't you? I mean, that emerges from all the books. You're, 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 you're enthralled by people, I think, and their personalities. Well, I'm fascinated by, by stories and by people. Yes, that's true. I get very excited. I'm sure that's the way dramatists feel. That's the way Shakespeare felt. I said, oh, I'm going to have somebody's eyes gouged out. <laughs> so that's really going to river. Uh, we, saw the, we saw the production on the, the fringe of Tis, John Ford's Tis Pity, She's a Whore. And, uh, and uh, of course, I studied that in school. And if any of you have seen the play, you know, it has this climatic scene. The young man, the brother comes in with his sister's incestuous relationship. Sister's heart is on a sword. Because each one of them was trying to outdo the other. So Shakespeare thought, I have my eyes plucked out. And somebody thought, I'll have a hand brought out on stage and a corpse. And then the heart on the sword, I think, was never outdone. So it was, they did it, you know, they did it the other day. And I thought, did fairly well, considering that's really hard. It's hard to do that today, you know. Because the problem, I think, in Shakespeare's time, it was a convention that one could understand. Now it just seems sort of strange, you know. You're, thinking, you're wondering, like, what is that? What is that that's actually on, on the sword? And then they have to stand there and have these long speeches, which is, again, unreal. Most of us seeing a heart on a sword, which is shriek and run the other way. <laughs> and this man is standing, the father of the girl has been butchered. He's so standing there with a goblet. <coughs> and he's sort of looking, and I'm thinking, this is not normal. <laughs> you drop the goblet and run and, run and, and call 911 or something. So. You, you said, Joyce, you said you live in an, a rarefied atmosphere in, in Princeton, if you like. Yes. But you must be a great eavesdropper, aren't you? Because you go on writing m a, a lot about people, um, the, maybe the sort of people with whom you grew up. With work, about working class people, blue collar workers. Yes, I so some fascinating. You've been people. called the poet yeah. of the proletariat. Who's called me there? I don't know, somewhere. <laughs> I read it somewhere. <laughs> poet of the Just proletariat. There's acres, there's acres of stuff on the internet. Yeah. I guess they say anything on the internet. Well, yeah, I yeah. like that, though. Poet of the proletariat. I could put that in the professor. I have an endowed, <laughs> endowed chair. At Princeton, I can have that underneath it. <laughs> so I just like everything, you know, you've got the proletariat, you have Princeton University, endowed chair, like just everything there. There's, not, there's nothing left for my colleagues. Just, uh, Roger, <laughs> well, the full title is Roger S. Berlin, the Distinguished Professor distinguished, of the Humanities, this goes isn't it? Sort of a wraparound. You know. <laughs> the poet of the proletariat. But do you, you, you still, you listen to people. I do listen to people when, when I'm not talking myself. <laughs> I'm usually not talking as much as when I'm being interviewed. I have to say, my husband does all the talking. <laughs> my husband's the raconteur in the family, and he's very good, so I'm just very quiet. I'm actually mute. <laughs> the first six weeks of a novel are, of writing a novel are hell. You said this. It's like working in the factory when you're a proletariat. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, 
No, I'm making a joke about something, but actually, it's actually very, it is very difficult to write a novel. And I'm just, you know, when you're talking about these things, you're sort of diminishing it all. But you have to understand that really it is very difficult because you're trying to create something, some sort of aesthetic object that wasn't there in the world before. And to try to formally figure out a way to present a story, we all have stories and and I'm fascinated by the stories, but that's only the, the raw material, then you have to figure out a way formally to present the story. And it, you have to have a structure. It's like a bunch of lumber and bricks and rubble lying over here. And then over here you have to build a little house or a cathedral or some Eiffel Tower or something. You have to build something out of this rubble that is somewhat original. It can't be the same thing that you did last time or something that somebody else has done. It has to be somehow original. And when you're in the first six weeks of building it, you're sort of trying to, you're trying to put something together that keeps falling down. And it keeps falling down in a way that is very frustrating and upsetting. And I'll give you an, an analog. Norman Mailer, who is a wonderful friend of mine who died a couple years ago, and I really miss Norman. He was sort of the lightning rod when people wanted to mock writers or just be very disdainful. They would, they would choose Norman rather than others. Anyway, he's gone. That's too bad. And Norman said that when he was working on a novel, he wouldn't read anybody else's writing because it was like he had all these parts on his garage floor, and there were people driving by in their Rolls Royces out there, and he could see them all driving by in their Ferraris and so forth. And he had all these parts and all this, this chassis and things that didn't, didn't work yet. That's exactly how you feel. You're grubbing away and you're trying to figure out how to get a little structure or a vehicle that was actually going to move because that is the hard part of it. So you have to find a voice and you have to find a first sentence. You have to find a first paragraph and a first scene. Once you get the first scene and the, maybe the first chapter, then your little vehicle is starting to move a little bit. But it can still collapse. And then I have to have the last sentence. I have the last paragraph, the last sentence, first sentence and paragraph. I have the title. So I have this sort of triangular thing, and then I can start to work with that. It sounds mystical and bizarre, but it's sort of a half unconscious or half intuitive thing. And I've learned that if I can meditate, if I can go running, if I walk, if I'm quiet, or just look out the window, or if I wake up in the morning and lie in bed and thinking about this relationship, if I just think about it long enough, I can figure it out. But I can't start writing it until I've figured it out. And therefore, in that period of time, you can't have a lot of interruptions. You can't be doing 25 other things because you can't figure this out. It's like a riddle, and you can't figure it out. Virginia Woolf said that writing is actually easy if you have the voice and the rhythm. Just once you get the rhythm, it's not difficult. But that's actually a cruel, it's a cruel joke because it's very hard to get that voice. 
When you read James Joyce's Ulysses, which is one of the very great works of literature ever written, he's got this rhythm. It starts immediately when you start reading it. It just starts right away. The first sentence is just beautiful. First page, it's just so wonderful that each chapter is a variant of that rhythm. And even the chapters near the end of the novel, which are extraordinarily uh, experimental and, and dissonant and strange, they still have that Joycean rhythm to them. And then the long Molly Bloom soliloquy, which is beautiful, 40 pages, is so lush and wonderful. All that came out of Joyce's working on it for seven years and thinking about it and just working very carefully until he got that rhythm. And it's all a very integrated and consistent work of art, like a good piece of music where each part relates to everything else. But that's seven years, and um, you can't do that in seven months. If he had had a word processor, he could type faster and so forth, but he could never have written it. Mm -hmm. you know? it was, some things will take seven years because they're, they're that profound. How do you keep going then? Are there times when you feel so miserable at the early stages of a novel that you, you think you'll put it aside? And do you ever put it aside? Oh, no, no, I never give up. I get more, I get more uh, anxious and more more uh, nervous. I could work late at night then. I've got to I've got to do it and sometimes I have only 20 minutes or a half an hour or five minutes. I'll try to work. Once I get to that subterranean point where the novel starts to move along then I can just keep on working at it. But I get very anxious because I'm like these old-fashioned boxers who only moved forward and they couldn't go backward or they couldn't go sideways the way boxers tend to do today. They have all sorts of different moves today. The old-fashioned boxers like Jack Dempsey, they just went forward, you know. And the idea of giving up to me would be just fatal. And I never cancel engagements either, and I don't cancel classes at my at university. Even sometimes I'm, I feel very sick, or I say I have a flu, or I'm, not, I'm just not well. I never cancel because I think that's just the beginning and then I'll cancel next week and so forth. So I sort of keep going. But with the novels, I never give up and I never, I never stop a project. I just finished a novel more or less just about last week that began actually in Edinburgh last time I was here. I had this very vivid dream and I never, never do this and I don't recommend it for anybody and I'm not going to do it again. I think only three times in my whole life I've had very vivid dreams and when I wake up and think, oh, that is so interesting. That's fantastic. I'm going to try to write that. I've, that's only happened three times. Because if you actually work with dream materials, they dissipate and you can't, there's not enough there. You have to, then you have to invent a lot. So it was really hard to write this novel. If I hadn't come to Edinburgh several years ago, and had this dream, I wouldn't have written this novel. It's completely generated by a, by a dream. That's the first time I've ever written a novel in, under those circumstances. So some years, maybe 20 years ago, I had a dream of Star Bright Will Be With You Soon. That was a title of a novel. And I woke up, Star Bright Will Be With You Soon. <laughs> Such an interesting sentence. I, why did that come from? Stars, S-T-A-R-R. So I wrote a whole novel that's a suspense novel under the name Rosamond Smith. It was suggested by that title. And that was not so difficult to do as this most recent novel. It's called Mud Woman. I just finished it and I have to sort of revise it and look at it again. But uh, that is an example of something that 
was very, um, very un atypical for me. It wasn't characteristic of me. Joseph Heller wrote strangely. Any of you know how Joseph Heller wrote? No. Joseph Heller, whom I knew just a little bit, of course he's, he's passed away. Joseph Heller would get out of nowhere, he's riding on a bus in New York. The first line of a novel comes to him. First line of a novel. And he doesn't know where it comes from. And then he's, he works on that a while, and it gets a second line of a novel, and the third line. And that's how he writes his novels. <laughs> One day he had the idea, this is when he was fairly young, somebody is in love with somebody else. Somebody's in love with the chaplain, is in love with somebody else. This turned out to be Catch-22. <laughs> but he didn't know that was coming. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah. So that's, that's very, very difficult to create a novel that way because all the material, of course, he didn't have access to it. All that material is coming out of his unconscious, but he didn't know how to get it. I mean, he didn't know what it was. Somebody is in love with somebody else. That's the famous beginning of Catch-22. I think it was called Catch-18 when he was working on it. And the novel, when he finished it, was rejected by many, many publishers, you know. One of the great best-selling novels of the 20th century is rejected all over. Mm -hmm. And finally, it did get published. And then he, he never really learned, he was never able to write in any way other than this very grueling and difficult way. Somebody is afraid of somebody else, and two other people are afraid of him. Something like that. It's the beginning of a novel mm -hmm. called Something Happened, which is about men working in New York City in some sort of an office building. About a sort of paranoia, I think. He had a dark sense of humor, and he was very guided by the unconscious. I would find that very difficult way to write. I'm not sure how Philip Roth writes. Philip is probably the writer that I, I know. Well, I know Russell Banks and Edmund White quite well, and I know Philip Roth. Uh, Russell Banks writes very much about his background, and he writes about where he lives in the Adirondacks. Edmund White, my dear friend, I think he was here not too long ago at mm -hmm. this wonderful festival a couple years ago. Edmund White writes beautifully, almost always about his own life. And he, he takes his own life, and he makes it very symbolic and, and like for his generation. And he's, uh, he's just got a gift for transforming personal life. Of course, Edmund's personal life is, yes. <laughs> is uh, a bit it's much. Colorful. It's colorful. We say colorful. It's yes. just it's, it's a bit much. But, uh, <laughs> it is a bit much. He would blush if he knew we were talking about him. Well, but he, now, now Edmund actually is working on a completely, a completely uh, embedded novel. I said to him, well, he read part of it to me over the, over the telephone. I said, well, those characters sound really very, very convincing and real. I said, I thought you said you made this up. He said, well, I'm drawing upon some people I know a little, you know, so he can't help that. And he, he'll take a person whom he knows, like Richard Howard or Susan Sontag, or Harold Brodke wrote about very, very well in his most recent book. And he, he gives these people almost like a um, mythic status, you know. He did know Susan Sontag, but he doesn't just describe her or talk about it. He, he, he really goes into the spiritual or, or the emotional depths of, of the person, what the person means in the context. So that's a, diff that's a different way of writing, I think, from the way I write. And it's very different from the way Joseph Heller wrote. 
it's, I wouldn't say it was easier, but I think that Edmund just has much more of a facility. And then I think Cynthia Ozick has a very difficult way of writing, and the late Bill Styron had another very difficult way of writing. Uh, all, all of us are sort of along the spectrum, and I'm, I'm maybe in the middle in terms of it being difficult. And some people have a really, really difficult time, and I'm not even sure how they can manage. It's, I think for Bill Styron, it was part of why he had to, had to drink, and he had to maybe uh, take narcotics, uh, take some drugs or something. There's a strain of writing or creating an art for some people is very, very difficult. Can I ask you, before we go to the audience, um, you, you've got the, you've finished a novel. I know you have two collections of sh two collections of short stories coming out yes. this year, but you've also written a memoir. This is a big departure for you. Yes, I wrote a memoir. Yes. yes. Um, would you tell the audience? Well, I, I I guess I don't feel that I want to talk about that right now. Okay, if you don't mind. No. Um, the, well, the one thing then it would lead me on to Joyce is um, there are very rarely. Um, there are always dramatic endings to your books and rarely a happy ending. However, um, you have a little happy ending of your own, don't you? Because you got remarried oh, last well, year. Oh, that's very touching. But you now have someone who um, also is your first reader for the I fiction. I have someone who's my first reader, that's right. And how is that? Because <laughs> so I can't look at him. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's really embarrassing when he falls asleep. <laughs> <laughs> No, he, no Char my husband, Charlie Gross, is a wonderful reader, and he's a very strict critic, and he knows a lot about commas. He knows a lot about <laughs> He's a, neur a neuroscientist, and he just has something about commas. He, he says, well, maybe you need a comma here or a comma there. <laughs> no, he's very sympathetic. I think, I think novelists need sympathy. Novelists need money and sympathy and all sorts of things. They're a very self-pitying group of people. <laughs> and I, I, I'm close friends with, with Edmund White, I mentioned, also Russell Banks and two or three other novelists. And we're the only people who complain about writing novels. You can only complain to one another because nobody else wants to hear it. It's a, it's very, a special kind of neurosis or a problem, I think, some sort of psychological problem where you try, as I said, you're trying to create this aesthetic object that actually wasn't in the world before out of all this rubble, or trying to make a casserole that's actually edible out of all this stuff in the refrigerator, some of which is really old and rancid, and you do funny things to it and put it in the casserole and sort of hope that people might, might find it edible. All that, that, uh, that effort, and maybe it's the same with mu music and art and, and theater and any kind of creativity. It's some sort of strange effort in the human spirit to create something that is an aesthetic object out in the world that wasn't there before. And we all feel that because it wasn't there before, that there's essential, uh, there's some beauty or naivete in the effort that you're bringing it out, you know, like somebody's bringing out an old bird's nest or a rat's nest or something that's all this stuff. And, so say, here's, my, here's my, my creativity and all that. There's something touching and naive about it, but it's just part of the human species, I think, that we, we somehow feel that we want to do this. And it's presented to a community or a communal sense. And it, I don't think there's that, I don't think really this arrogant or egotistical, though it's often said of artists that they are arrogant, like my friend Norman Mailer was considered quite arrogant and egotistical. I think when you really get to know these people, they're actually quite, in a way, quite humble. And what they're doing is something almost out of, out of reticence or, 
or shyness or insecurity that they're, that they're doing this effort. Because when you get to know the people very intimately, they don't have the, the, the sense of arrogance that they seem to have in a more public way. Okay, I'm sure you've got questions. If you wave, please, we will bring a microphone to you. It was stunned. There's a gentleman. Uh, sorry, I can't see. Gentleman, yes. Thank you. Your poetry and uh, essays don't seem to get onto the shelves over here. Is there any hope? You mean, is there any? Uh, and their shops. They don't seem to get into the shops. Oh, well, that's very touching to say, is there any hope? Oh. <laughs> um, Oh, I don't know what to say. Maybe with the internet and, and buying things through Amazon, maybe, maybe there's a different world now and people can buy things and not just through bookstores. I'm not sure. Amazon no, so. no my, my essays, don't, you're quite right, they don't seem to have gotten across the Atlantic. That's true. Why, why, don't, why don't your critical essays get published here? Do you know that? Because they're wonderful. I mean, you gave me one this year called Rough Country, a collection oh, of essays, uh -huh. which is just beautiful. I don't know. It's sort of, uh, maybe I'm not the person to ask. I mean, it's a matter of publishing. Publishing is not not a charity, you know. The idea of publishing is actually supposed to be a business. I guess they have this naive idea that they're actually trying to sell books. And so they feel that they can't sell critical books. Maybe they do over here by your own critics, and maybe it's Maybe there's sort of a, a UK critics uh, brotherhood or something, and they don't want people coming in from the outside. <laughs> but my other books come in, maybe that they feel that's quite enough. You know? <laughs> I, however, I love writing critical essays. Gentleman here, please. When a book is given to you uh, to evaluate, how do you do it? Are you thinking of any particular book that I've, I've reviewed? No, I, anyone that's given to you. They say, Joyce, would you look at this and evaluate it? How do you approach that book? Oh, okay. I do a lot of reviewing for the New York Review of Books, and so I thought maybe it was in reference to some particular book that I reviewed. Well, when I review for the New York Review particularly, I uh, read a lot of other books by the same person and try to see what the person's trying to do. And just, I tend to be a very sympathetic reviewer and very, I take the side of the writer, and I'm not, I'm not usually very critical. I'm not hypercritical, I think. So I don't know how to answer it beyond that, to see what the intention is and to see if it's an original voice. And, and since I sort of look for old-fashioned virtues like sincerity. I know that sounds a little bit archaic, but sincerity in writing to me is, is, a, is a, a value. Uh, Richard Ford and I were saying, uh, we were judges, I think, for some literary prize. And when it comes right down to it, you're sort of looking for a sincere and authentic voice rather than someone who's postmodernist and clever. Do you find, is, is it difficult juggling reviewing with writing another book? You know, you, you talked about the fact that you, Mailer couldn't read anything else while he was writing. Well, the, some, most of my writer friends don't review at all. It's most unusual. Edmund White and I do review, but about Russell Banks never review. Norman Mailer would never review. Philip Roth would never think of reviewing. Um, Saw Bellow, people... Mm, well, Cynthia Ozick does review. There are just a few, just a few little, uh, a small number of people who will review, because it is distracting. When I met 
Bernard Malamad, a wonderful writer, a very, very uh, focused and somewhat obsessive, compulsive revi reviser of writing. He would write and revise in a very, very rigid way. He looked upon me really with a startled and pitying look. He said, how can you possibly be reviewing other people's books? And I always remember him looking at me with this look of pity or in incomprehension. And now I'm beginning to understand what he means because it's a tremendous uh, disruption. If you're having difficulty with your own writing, then to stop and, re and read somebody else's book where it's all finished and polished and review it, it is, it's quite a jolt, actually. Gentleman here, please. Um, I noticed that um, you talked a great deal about other authors when replying to Jackie's questions. Would you care to comment on this? I just the fact that you talked about so uh, at length about other authors and how they worked, and is that uh, do you try to distance yourself from your own work, or what's the reason for this? Well, I don't know how to answer that question. It seems quite natural to talk about other people like James Joyce. I could talk about D.H. Lawrence quite a bit, too, or Faulkner. And uh, when you spoke, I, I, I was thinking of John Updike. I haven't mentioned John Updike. Just, just <laughs> <laughs> well, I think of us all as friends and companions who are certainly all contemporaries, people I mentioned. And, we, and the fact that we have different ways of writing, I thought was kind of interesting. Of all the writers I'd mentioned, John Updike and I are probably the most similar. Uh, John and I are both not quite the same age. John was a little older than, than I am, and I really missed him a lot. I really missed John Updike a lot. He always had about two books a year, and it was wonderful to see them come out. But we come from the same kind of background, and both of us very inf much influenced by James Joyce. He was influenced by Nabokov, and I was influenced more by Faulkner. That's the big major difference between us, I guess. But uh, of all the writers I mentioned in terms of, of the ways of writing and first drafts and revisions, I've so much like, uh, pretty much like John Updike. I can't say why I refer to them any more than it's just my personality. I'm also a professor. So if I'm talking about writing, it's natural to talk about. You could co very usefully compare Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, I'd say. You could compare Charles Dickens and George Eliot, uh, Thomas Hardy and D.H. Lawrence. There are ways of comparing writers that throw light on each writer. You could talk about what, what uh, Bronte's, what one Bronte is doing in terms of what the other Bronte is doing, whether Heights and Jane Eyre. You know, they're, they're alike in so many ways, and then they're dissimilar. It's just the way that professors talk, I think, which is actually quite helpful. <laughs> <laughs> A lady here, please. Thank you. Um, I've just started reading your work, so you may have addressed this, but I was interested in uh, you're talking about your European ancestry, your German Jewish and your yes, Hungarian. Yes. And I just wonder how curious you are about this and whether you might even place a book sometime in Europe or whether this is going to stay, remain an unknown sort of well, bit for you. Well, I think that's a good question. I did write a novel called The Gravedigger's Daughter, pretty much about my grandmother. And they, it starts when they, they're arriving from Germany. They're, 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 come, they're in New York Harbor. And basically, she's born, I think, there. My own grandmother was born in the United States. 
so to answer your question, both yes and no, I don't think I read a novel set in Europe, but very much of that generation. I'm so impressed and, and overawed by my ancestors, by the generation before me. Both my parents and my grandparents, they were really like pioneers. They, these, the immigrant generations, just amazing, um, I think, immigrants to North America. The ones who came around the time of the Nazis, who got out in time, or those who came in the late uh, 1890s was a very big uh, decade for, for immigration. Uh, I find that just endlessly interesting. I could, I could read novels about that subject. I could write novels about that subject. But as for going back to Europe, the way my, my student, Jonathan Safran Foer, F-O-E-R, you may know everything is illuminated. He was my, my student at Princeton. Uh, Jonathan wrote about his own grandfather in terms of the actual village he came from in Ukraine. And Jonathan went back to the, to the village. That, any of you know the novel, Everything is Illuminated? Some people, yeah. He, well, he was my wonderful student at Princeton. He was my undergraduate. And, that, and Everything is Illuminated was his senior thesis. It was fantastic. So in the year that he was writing that, on my desk he gave me photographs of his grandparents and the uh, other things in his family. So the whole novel was generated out of Jonathan's making a pilgrimage back to Ukraine to the village where his was a Jewish village, a settlement. And when he got there, it was just a, a, a rubble field. There was nothing there. The Nazis just burned everything. They destroyed it. And so he saw that he would have to then invent the whole novel. So he went to a bed and breakfast. And he, he said he was either going to hang himself, because he had no thesis, either kill himself or write a novel, can make it all up. So he started inventing it all, and he has this kind of Isaac Bathsheba singer thing going on in the novel where he was able to give a voice to it. I don't feel that I could do that or would even want to do that. I'm somehow not, I'm not able, not, I'm not interested in going back and trying to invent that, because Jonathan Four had to completely invent it. So he put it together out of other Jewish writers, like Isaac Singer. And you can only put it together out of other writers because there's nothing there. You can't, you can't go back in time. So that's not anything I would do. So I wrote about my grandmother in North America and, um, and her own experiences. And then my, my own role in the novel, I'm like her, her son, who's a, who's a pianist. My grandmother had a lot of hope for me because I was a writer. And I sort of mixed the family generations together, and that's how I wrote my, The Gravedigger's Daughter. Um, gentleman here, I can take one more. Sorry. There was someone at the back, though, who would put their hand. Anyway, please. Except for Jonathan Four, I noticed that all the people you've spoken about, and it's quite understandable, are from your own generation. I wonder if you would comment on the literary debate that is around these days saying that the novel is becoming less read and that nonfiction and crime fiction are being much more read. Well, I think, what, I think the genre that's read a lot is memoir. I think the memoir, the, no, the energies of the novel have always been memoirist. Some of the great novels like Proust, let's say, and much of James Joyce and, and much of D.H. Lawrence, and actually some of 
Hemingway as well, those energies are very memoirist anyway. The people were not writing memoirs, but they were writing these great mass of novels or bodies of novels like Hemingway that are very much about a person, a person's own experience. So the, the, the genre of our time in America is probably memoir. And then, of course, crime fiction's always been around. Crime fiction is, goes back to Daniel Defoe. I mean, the idea of true crime, um, that is not anything new. But these memoirs that are very confessional and very uh, finite in scope, like William Stiven's Darkness Visible is a quintessential example. It's not a memoir in the sense of an autobiography about a life. It's about his, his depression and breakdown. So it takes place in a, say his life is this much, this takes place in a little part, of a small part of his, of his life. But people are still writing novels. J.K. Rowling, for instance, had this, uh, all these, these Harry Potter novels, which are now um, legendary bestseller. I mean, we have bestsellers in the United States. Let's say Stephen King sells this much, you know. J.K. Rowling was off the scale. I mean, the sales of her books just were not, not even measurable in terms of what we were accustomed to. Our mega bestsellers, uh, literary, literary bestsellers are really very small, have always been small. Uh, Hemingway would have bestsellers, but if you measured a Hemingway bestseller, like For Whom the Bell Tolls, against one of these mega bestsellers of today, it's very small. So I'm not sure that the novels, the novels' energies are not dead. They may be packaged or, or marketed in different ways, but the, the Twilight novels, which are about vampires in high school, I think, <laughs> I haven't read them, but they're enormously popular, they're so like J.K. Rowling. And then James Patterson, I think he's a person. Because um, <laughs> No, there are some of those writers who are not alive anymore, and other people are writing for you know, their teams. But I think James Patterson may still be, still be alive. Anyway, he's, he's another one of these mega bestsellers. So I, I think the novels, in, the novels are it's just different energies. And then people are writing on the internet now. The question might be, what is the fate of, of book reviewing and book criticism? Because the daily newspapers, particularly in the United States, are cutting out their book review pages. And when I'm asked that question, I say, well, on the internet, there are these blogs, mm -hmm. literary blogs, that are actually very thoughtful. Many of them are extremely bookish and intellectual. People have degrees, and they've done a lot of reading, and, and they know a lot about literature. They're not longer being published in newspapers, so they're going on the internet. But they're still, it's, a, it's accessible to more people than it would have been in, in, a, in a newspaper. Um, well, there we have the noises off that we expected. Um, I, I have to, we've run out of time, I'm afraid. I don't know about you, but I want to be 18 again. I want to go to Princeton, and I want to become <laughs> one of Joyce's students. Um, Thank you all for coming. Joyce will be signing copies of her books uh, in the London Review of Books signing tent, which is on your left as you exit this venue. And if you would give us just a moment to get there first, please. Thank you. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk, along with a selection of videos.